Welcome to the SAMA Podcast, where we talk to the most experienced people in B2B to find answers to one simple question. How can you become and remain essential to your strategic customers? Tune in as our guests reveal what it takes to become the supplier they cannot afford to lose. Learn how to level up your account management strategies to promptly deliver speed, convenience, and success to each customer. Let's jump into the discussion right now with Denise Fryer and Harvey Dunham. Wow, are we in for a great conversation today? So let's get started. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Gus Makish. Gus is currently an adjunct professor at Pace University, the Lubin School of Business, following an amazing career with 37-year career with IBM, where he started in sales and ended in sales and along the way was an executive and grew to an executive level and just had an amazing journey. And we'll get to delve into that in more detail. Gus, welcome to the SAMA podcast. We can't wait to hear your story. Thank you, Harvey. It's good to be here. Fantastic. And our other guest is Noel Capon, who is the RC Cop Professor of International Marketing at Columbia Business School in New York City. He's also a longtime SAMA board member and without question, one of the leading experts on strategic account management in the world. Noel, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for all you do for the SAMA and SAM community. Welcome. Harvey, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here and especially delighted to be here with Gus. Together, Gus and Noel wrote a book entitled Customers Win, Suppliers Win, which we'll discuss today. And if you want to know what great global strategic account management looks like, up close and personally, then you're at the right podcast at the right time. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Let's get right into the questions. And I want to start out with how did you two meet and decide to write this book together? Let's just start there. Let's start with Gus. Hi, I was the managing director on the Citi account. I managed the relationship between IBM and Citigroup. One of the guys on my team was a graduate of Columbia and got their business magazine. And he would always send it to me and we would circulate it. So he sent me an issue and he said, you got to see this. And he indexed one page and it was an interview with Noel. And Noel was describing the difficulties of managing a global account. And the example he used throughout the interview was, imagine that you were working for IBM and your customer was Citigroup. You got two global organizations. Here are some of the issues you would face and what you might do about them. So I read the article and I sent Noel an email and said, I read your, your, this interview, and I thought it was terrific. And by the way, I work for IBM, and my job is managing the Citigroup account. Two minutes later, I got a response back from Noel saying, that's terrific. Why don't we have lunch sometime? So a couple of months later, we got together, we had lunch, and we began talking. And Noel invited me to be a guest lecturer in his class. And then several, two or three years after that, he said, you know, I have this idea. I've been studying this for a good portion of my life. You've been doing it for a good portion of yours. Why don't we get together and collaborate on a book? And I said, yeah, it's fine with me. I'll see if IBM is okay with it. I got in touch with a whole bunch of IBM lawyers, you know, 25 lawyers on the phone. And they gave me, IBM does everything that way. Then I got the list of what I can talk about, what I can't talk about, and so on and so forth. Then we got together and, and wrote this book. It's been a great experience. I love working with Noel. He's terrific. So one quick question before I get Noel's version on this is, who paid for lunch? That's what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. It probably split. Maybe he did. I don't remember that. <laughs> Thank you. Noel, do you want to add anything to the story? 
First of all, I, I paid for lunch. My uh, recollection is, is pretty much the same. I, I think rather than an article, I, I'd published a book. I'd worked with a couple of guys, a guy at IBM and a guy at uh, Xerox. And we'd written a book on managing global customers. And that was essentially the basis for working with, for, for, for initially meeting with Gus, having lunch, and then a couple of other lunches and so forth. And what had occurred to me was over, over time, I think Gus is right, we didn't decide to write a book right away, that came after a few years, was that Gus has had this enormously successful career in account management, working successively with a large regional company in the United States, then working with a large national company in the United States, then ultimately moving over to global, working with Citi. And it just seemed to me that Gus had such an enormous experience, a lot of, of depth and knowledge, that if I was able to pull that together, or we together were able to pull that together, this would be a, a tremendous amount of uh, intellectual capital, for want of a better word, on managing strategic and global accounts. We're now you know, well over 10 years since that initial lunch book grows you go through lots of revisions and, and we had a very good editor and so that's sort of the history from my perspective amazing One final point on the book that noah mentioned managing global accounts i think that book became a bestseller because i bought so many copies of it and distributed it. <laughs> <laughs> well it, it clearly i mean anybody that has managed a global account knows this but for those of you who may not have had the pleasure of managing an account that is truly global, present in most, if not all, countries of the world, it is a challenge. And Gus, when you accepted this assignment to become the managing director of Citi globally, this was a brand new position that had been created by the CEO of IBM. And it was also, you knew you were, uh, let's say in the, the, I'm a golfer, so I'll call it the second nine of your career. It was likely to be your last assignment or one of your last assignments. And you decided to take this customer on. There's another aspect of it, a nuance of it, was that this wasn't a customer that was already known as one of the best strategic accounts in IBM. Rather, it was actually known as one of the most difficult accounts in IBM's collection of customers. What made you decide that that was the role for you? I think I was probably playing on the 18th hole rather than the second half of that golf course. <laughs> At the time, I was in the year 2000, I was vice president of sales for the financial services sector in the United States. So I had 17 direct reports, 200 roughly account managers, all of them working with the largest uh, financial institutions in the U.S. In 2000, IBM had a task force. They had put together a task force. It was chaired by Ginny Rometty, who later became the CEO at IBM. And they were looking into growth issues. Why were some of our competitors growing at a more rapid rate than IBM was? Uh, they reached a number of conclusions, but one of them was that IBM was difficult to do business with. It wasn't the product set that was causing our problems, but rather the way that we interacted with customers. So one of the things that they decided to change or try was to take existing IBM executives and put them in charge of some of our major accounts. They picked 33 accounts. They would empower these executives to make decisions on the spot, including pricing, and remove some of the frustrations that customers had with IBM. I was convinced, I had been in IBM for 30 years at that time, 
And I was convinced IBM could do anything in the world of technology and business. If you could just get the right resources and get them focused on the problem, we had everything. We had brilliant people. We had products. We had flexibility. You could find the right people and get them focused. So the task force picked 33 accounts. My manager at the time was uh, Word Cook. Word called me one day and said, you know, the task force is finished. They're creating this position and they'd like you to take the Merrill Lynch account. I had been the account manager, the client executive of Merrill Lynch for eight years, from 1989 to 1997. During that period of time, my team and I more than doubled the revenue at Merrill Lynch. We had a good relationship with the customer. Logically, it would be a nice place, good for IBM to put me back. But my response was uh, toward, you know, I'll do whatever you guys want. I always did that for 30 years. Understand IBM was a great company to work for. They did a lot for me. So I just went with the flow. So I said, yeah, I'll do it. But my contacts are all gone. Merrill is reorganized. All the people I was close to have left, retired. They go on to other companies. And I can go back and make new friends. But the problem may be that I'm associated with the old regime. So you might be better off if you picked someone else. But whatever you guys decide, I'm fine with it. A couple of days later, Word's boss, Jerry Cole, called me. And he said the task force agreed with me. And they had a new offer. He said, you're going to take the biggest, baddest, meanest. I said, oh, no, not city. I said, I've been in 30 years. I've had this recurrent nightmare that someday I'd end up on Citibank. I can't believe this is happening to me. I, mean, I knew the customer because they reported to me in my vice president role. They were a difficult customer, but in 1998, they merged with Travelers. Uh, John Reed, who was co-CEO at Sandy Weil, had left in the early part of 2000. It looked like there might be some possibilities there. And Jerry said I would report to him. He was the global head of financial services. I wouldn't be reporting to someone with U.S. responsibilities, which was very important. The position was empowered. He described the incentive plan, which was very generous if you could be successful and grow the revenue. It was a promotion to the managing director level, which meant more stock and stock options. It all looked appealing to me. Difficult customer, challenge, but it had potential in my mind. That's amazing. As part of this decision, you, you kind of slipped this in, and I certainly got it by uh, looking at the reading the book as well. But So you had pricing authority globally. Yes. So when there was a deal to be done, the buck stopped with you, basically. This is important. Pricing had always been an issue with customers. If you're in the midst of a negotiation and the customer makes some demands and your response says, okay, let me go back to the office and I'll come back, get back to you tomorrow. And at some point, the customer's saying, whoever you're going back to the office to call, why don't you bring them here so we can talk to him? Because it's this back and forth with the finance people and the customer, and you become the conduit for this. It becomes particularly difficult when you're packaging a deal that has multiple components. We have hardware businesses, software businesses, services businesses. Hardware, you're doing a deal that might involve multiple hardware lines, multiple software lines and different services. So you try to put the deal together and every one of these people has their own pricing people who are protecting their price. Oh, I'm at rock bottom. I'll lose money if I go any lower and make that other guy lower his price. I could do all of that. I was empowered to do that. I was given as part of this new structure at my own CFO. So Jack Althausen was my finance guy. He had worked in finance before. Every time you put a deal together, Jack would give me all of the details on every component, the revenue, the gross profit, revenue less cost is the gross profit. After that, you've got the controllable SGNAs. You take that out, and then you've got NEBA, net earnings before allocations. 
that was the measurement that we used on my quotas. I had a revenue plan and I had a profit plan. So it was NEBA. So I could look at all the components, see where the costs were, see where the revenue was, see where the profit was. And with that information, I could construct a deal that would be a competitive deal that would be good for the customer and for IBM. And I had the authority to override all of those product division people, which made IBM more responsive and more competitive. That was the point of it. Let's just stop here and take a zoom on this new role that Gus took as managing director and the pricing authority and the other global remit and all of this. You've seen lots of Gus's in other companies. How unique was this role? and What was unusual about this approach that IBM took? Some of the most difficult questions for management have to do with organization structure. And companies in general do not like to change the organization structure terribly often because it means it's people's careers, it's people's responsibilities, it's people's pay, and so on and so forth. And I think that the the move from domestic operations to global is a change is an area where you've got to try it, where you probably have to make some organization structure changes. Now the way most international companies are organized is that they organized by geographic area. So you have the, maybe the Americas, you have EMEA, you know, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and you may have Asia or Asia Pac or something like that. Most of companies have sort of three or four or maybe five regions, and the regional VPs are very high status, a lot of responsibility, and they have country managers and so forth. And that's the way most com- many, many companies have developed to address international and global issues. The problem becomes then when you get to the customer. The customer in here wants to make a decision around the world, but they're dealing with these different uh, geographic units. And they're also, as Gus talked about, dealing with different product units. And often for, cu- for customers, that's very frustrating. It's very difficult. It's very time consuming. What IBM did was a major change with that. They said, no, we're not going to do that. Oh, we may do that for some customers, but we're going to have a global person, a global person who can make decisions for IBM. He or she does not have to go back to the geographic areas or the or the product groups. And I think this was a major shift. IBM had always been at the front edge of what was going on in account management, but this was a real change. And I think one of the things that I mean, Gus told me is that Sam Parmesano, who was then at that stage CEO, soon later to become CEO, passed on his authority to these managing directors whom Gus was one. It was very much a customer-focused organizational shift. I think it was very bold because it did change what was going on in IBM. And certainly in Gus's case, was very successful. I mean, Gus hasn't said yet, but Gus drove those revenues from something around 200 million to something around 600 million in about um, in five or six years, which was a tremendous accomplishment. The basic answer to your question is a major shift. IBM was really innovative. Very bold from top management, from Gerson's point of view and from Farmazano's point of point of view. Gus was one. And of course, there were 30 altogether, 
30 plus of people in Gus's position and did very well. But the other other point I think is is important. It wasn't just any account manager who got the job that I put in very senior people into that role because they were going to have this pricing and broad responsibility. Interesting. Even today, I don't know of many programs out there that where the leader of the account, the, the strategic account lead for the customer is given pricing authorities. It was an amazing amount of empowerment and it all sounded good up front and you accepted this difficult challenge. And I was laughing in the laughing uh, in sympathy almost in a way. Euphemistically, Noel called it a Citigroup, a, a classic turnaround situation. Gus, so, you know, the great thing, when you got the job, it all sounded good, well-empowered, all those things, but then you had to figure out what to do. How did you come upon, what was your turnaround strategy and how did you decide that that was the way to go? Well, you start, focus on each individual business area, IBM's business areas and cities' lines of business. I had an operations manager who gave me the breakdown of, of IBM's business by city business area and by IBM's business areas. There's hardware, there's mainframes, servers, PCs, storage devices, tape disk, all of those things, same with software, all of our software divisions. So when you look at that, you try to figure out why is this customer buying their Unix service from Sun and not from IBM? In one area of the bank, we had a sales rep. Her name was Carrie Hergerty. She covered City Mortgage. Her customers was buying IBM Unix servers. So the question is why? Why are they buying it? Why do they see the value? Yet the whole investment bank is buying Sun servers. So what's the difference? So you go through every product line in each of our business areas, hardware, software, services, and ask, why is that? Is it price? Is it functionality? Is it support? What's the cause of it? Now, this is hardly a brilliant strategy, but that is the way you start with any customer. Why are they buying from somebody else? Why are they not buying from me? That's where we began. And this is global. Yes. So you're taking a, a global point of view. And as I understood it, or understand it from what I learned from the book, City is very decentralized. They really weren't a centralized organization so much as they were more of a decentralized organization. But you were creating a strategy for the whole account. How did you decide to approach this? I don't want to call them a multi-headed monster, but <laughs> a lot of different dragons to slay, so to speak, and, and trying to come together and, and add value at the core of the company. How did you work that through? Let me say a couple of things in advance of asking that question. As I said before, the relationship with City started this downhill slope sometime in the mid-1980s. But in 1998, they, when they had the merger with Travelers, Travelers and City got together, they had co-CEOs, Sandy Weil from the Traveler side, John Reed from the City side. John Reed stepped down, I think it was in February of 2000, it was announced. So he was gone. So now there's a big change. Big change always creates opportunity. That is number one. Now you've got a kind of a different organization. When I started in 2001, I knew the city team because they had reported to me as the sales VP. The city team wasn't a bad team. They had some strong players in the team, but they needed focus. This is a team that hadn't made their quota more than once or twice in 10 years. So you get distracted then. People worry about the next job, about money, about envy. Somebody else is making more money than we are. So you end up with morale issues. There's nothing that fixes morale issues like success. 
So you get these people and you get them focused on the business, long-term business, short-term business. Old boss work cook used to say, long-term is great, but we have to eat along the way. So I want to know what the opportunities are. And I develop, put all these in a spreadsheet. I use Lotus 123, my version of CRM. Type in all these opportunities, update them. I did this. I typed them in, it would cause me to remember them. So I would have at the beginning 30 to 50 opportunities for the on my spreadsheets. Towards the end of my time, I would have 100. At 25 people, account managers, product specialists, everybody needs to focus. You got to focus on your area. And, you know, like the Marines, when you're under attack, everybody's a soldier, everybody's in the infantry. We all fight together for whatever that transaction or those transactions are. So after two years, some people had left, they took other jobs in IBM, some people resigned. But after two years of success, everybody wanted to stay. So I had Ralph Guzzo ran retail bank, Joe Jennings ran the other side. Good people, none better. First year, we had a quota of somewhere around 250 million. We made that quota by $200,000 my first year there. This is, says a couple of things. One, you can do it. But number two, no transaction is too small. You're working on something. If I have a salesperson and my team working on something, it's not too small for me to get involved if I've got that person doing it. And you never know. You make that successful, it's going to lead to other things. That's kind of the background. Now, you're, to answer your question, there were people, City had a headquarters organization with some people that were the p- kinds of people I could deal with. Mel Taub was their CTO. Bob Druskin was the head of operations. Later, Debbie Hopkins uh, replaced Bob Druskin as the head of operations. These are people who wanted to make their organization work better. Smart people, they're honest people, they're not political, like Ed Goldberg at Merrill Lynch or Oliver DeSophie at NBNA. They're people who want to do the right thing. These are the people I can deal with. Like It's hard to deal with people where you don't know what their motivations are. These people I understood. So you want to find those people who want to do the right thing and you want to help them do it. So what do they want to do? They want to bring their costs down. They want to manage more effectively. Well, how do you do that? You establish standards, enforce those standards, then you can consolidate, then you can move stuff to lower cost centers, offshore, onshore. That's really the heart of the strategy, their strategy. I have a global team. We share information. I visited all the major sites around the world. I knew what was happening in city, across city, across the world. Some of that is in the book, some of these uh, relationships and the business that we found. But this information, this view is of value. A customer like City could hire IBM or Booz Allen or Deloitte or anyone to study the organization to find what my team knew as a byproduct of our jobs. Where are the standards follows? Where are the risks? What can go wrong? Where are the renegades? So we want to fix problems before they get escalated, our problems, and you want to maintain a relationship with those senior people who really care about their business. City hired my predecessor. We had a client exec on City, Tim Tynan. He was a good man. City hired him, and he ran a large portion of City's organization, including procurement. And he helped us a lot with input. After six months or a year, he said to me that IBM had good buzz at City. We're dealing with them. We deal fairly. We deal honestly. And that's the way you build relationships. And that relationship continued to grow and evolve until the day I left. They became a great customer. Well, let's jump out here for a moment and get your point of view on the, the strategy. In particular, maybe a comment. You happened in to take this account over, Gus, at a moment of disruption. And I've read in various different articles that 
it's a little bit like never waste a good crisis or a a major change. Just maybe some comments on what to do when there's a disruption, how to look at that. Is it a problem or an opportunity? And then the strategy that Gus created going forward. One of the items that came out of the collaboration with Gus is something I'd been working on for a while, and that had to do with what are the core strengths that a global account or a strategic account manager has to have. And let me just pick up on, we developed through this book, and it's some of this is book about Buster's career, but it's also sort of my latest thinking on account management. We developed this notion of the six, the, the acumen sextet, which are six areas that the account manager has to really be good at. And let me just pick up on the one which you've just really been, so Gus, been talking about, and that's what we call organizational acumen. And what that means is really understanding the customer in a very, very deep way. And I think what Gus just went through is a real exemplifies someone who has great organizational acumen, understands the organization, knows where the issues are, knows where the problems are, knows which people are likely to be on your side, knows which people like to be on the side of the competitor. And so I think the root of Gus's success is, one of the roots anyway, is that Gus had tremendous or developed tremendous organizational acumen. He had some going in because he'd been the VP of sales and the city people reported up to him. But I think that in that first year or two years, he spent tremendous effort developing his knowledge of knowledge of city. So he was able to identify where the opportunities were and really work on them. And as you heard him say, that he was given a very aggressive goal. Uh, I should also say that Gus had both revenue goals and profit goals and both one-year goals and three-year goals. So it was very tightly tightly managed from the top that he managed to make that first-year goal, which was an increase of some getting on for 20% of uh, over the revenue of the, of the prior year. And you heard him say he just made it, but he made that by really identifying opportunities on the one hand and then the the principle I like to talk I like to talk about of selectivity and concentration. Identified an opportunity set, figured out the importance one, and concentrated his resources to various salespeople and, and so forth that work for him. So I, I think organizational act one of a half a dozen I like to talk about, but I think Gus really exemplifies someone who really had tremendous organizational acumen, uh, certainly in those early years dealing with city. And this will probably touch on another one of those acumen points, I suppose, but it it does take a team, Gus. You can't manage a customer this big. So that's the second acumen dimension, teamwork. And when teamwork, clearly, I mean, Gus mentions he had 20-odd people on the team, and most of whom were direct reports, but he also had uh, solid lines. Some were dotted lines, for instance, maybe a salesperson in Australia, who spent most of their time on Citibank, would report solid line to a country manager in Australia, but dotted line up to Gus. So you've got teamwork of the people that are sort of close to you on an ongoing basis. But there are also other people throughout, throughout the IBM organization who have particular skills that are needed to deal with some opportunity. You've got to be able to bring those people on board, although you have absolutely no reporting relationship with them 
whatsoever. So uh, teamwork is another very important accurate dimension. And I think Gus certainly exemplifies that. We talk about that that in the in the book. Gus, let's go there a little bit. How did you pick this team up out? First of all, let's want to join it a customer where they, they know in the past it hadn't been successful. It was it was a, as I understand it, a well known internal view that that City was a tough customer to keep it simple. I'd also love to get your comment on generally a great Sam. I mean, in Sam parlance, I suppose you were the Sam, you were the global strategic account manager, but each of them had their own relationships and things they were responsible for. So in a way they were Sam's in their own right in their areas of expertise or locations in the world. I'd love to get your point of view on whether great Sam's are, are they born? Are they made or both? You're right that every one of those people on my team, if they weren't a product specialist, they were a SAM in the part of the business that they managed. I had one in Singapore, I had all over the world. To be successful with this, there's certain basic skills that you need. You need communication skills, an ability to take something that's complex and break it down into the simple components and be able to explain it to people who don't necessarily have the depth that you do. You need a business sense. You need a technical aptitude if you're working for IBM selling technology. And you need, most importantly, the ability to listen, to understand what someone is telling you and remember it so that you can construct the right solutions. Integrity is extremely important. And the sense of responsibility, this is critical. This is what I always look for in people. If something goes wrong, you don't look for someone to blame. You try to think about what you did wrong or what you might do differently next time. Some people have that. Other people have a presence. They have a gravitas. That certainly helps, but that's rare. I've met a couple people like that. Most of what it takes to be a good Sam, I guess saying leadership is the best way to describe it. You can teach people products. You can give them business knowledge. You can't teach integrity or that sense of responsibility. I saw an interview with Sam Palmisano, our former CEO, and he said, we hire smart people. Smart people can learn anything but they can't learn integrity if they don't have it. And if they don't have it, you have to get rid of them. You know, in IBM, we had a certification program for our client execs, people who manage the large accounts. I was the chairman of that program, actually the chairman of the board for that program at IBM. It was a joint program we did with Harvard Business School. It had really stiff requirements. No one has a program like that with Columbia. I think SAMA does as well. Will you teach people the business skills? But like I said, you can't teach them that sense of responsibility. Are they born that way or do they learn it somehow in the course of their life that this is mine, I own it, I'm going to make it work. Initially, when I got there, you're right, City was not an attractive uh, an account for people. But after I was there for, I think, my second year, there were people who would come to me and say they'd like to join the team. They saw the success. They saw the potential. Buzz gets around. So these are some of the people that I knew. People come to me and say that. I knew what their skills or abilities were. And I would always say to them, have your manager call me. I don't poach people. That manager calls me. I got um, Ravi, Jim Glenister, some of the people in the book, Gary Napolitano, Renshaw, Grossfeld, they're all people. They were in the book. They approached me and said they wanted to join the city team. That's how I recruited. It wasn't me talking people into it. It was the other way around. It's just a funny, quick observation. It's just amazing to me how fast good news travels is relative to a customer on the way up and salespeople making good bonuses and all those kinds of things. It does, the word does travel fast. It goes fast both ways. If it's right. going the other way, that goes fast too. Interesting. 
But Noel, you'd like to weigh in on this a little bit. Just comments on the Gus's point of view about SAMs and what they were the importance. Oh, no, of- I think that well, let me just just wrap up my acumen dimensions since we're yeah. working in, into that. So I've talked about uh, organizational acumen. First is is strategic acumen. That's the notion has to really understand the strategy of his or her company, but also learn, understand the strategy of the account. And both of those, of course, change over time. The account manager needs to know that because the idea is to sort of, if you can link those strategies together or find linkage points, those are places where there's opportunity. So we start with strategic acumen. Second is organizational acumen. That's understanding the customer. We talked about that. Third one is team building acumen. We just talked about that. A fourth is business acumen. And what I mean by that is the ability to make deals. And I think that has, cha- is, has, has changed. That it was one thing to develop, to bring what I call functional value, the value of your products and services to the customer. But increasing customers want to know the finances. They want to know why that, from a financial point of view, is purchasing versus those of competitors. So I think the skill set of account managers has to, in addition to the things we sort of always we know, it's got a big financial piece. The fifth one is resource acumen, which, which Gus alluded to, and that's figuring out, being able to spring the resources out of your company to help address the opportunities that you find. And they could be all over the organization. From Gus's point of view, and Gus can probably speak to this better than I can, but IBM is an enormously sprawling company with tremendous amount of, of expertise, especially technical expertise, all over the organization. Your account manager's got to figure out where that is. <laughs> got to know that and then be able to bring that to bear on the opportunities. That's critical. That's something that Gus, because of his many years in IBM, had a pretty good handle on. And then the final acumen dimension is one that you've just been talking about, and that's what I call personal acumen, the ability to work hard, the ability to have integrity. Integrity, and we spend some time on this in the book, and I know this is an area where Sam has been doing some research on the words may be somewhat different, but it's like the return to integrity. And then there's another one, I think, which is very important. That's the notion of managerial courage, being able to make some decisions that may go against the grain or may go against the general direction of the way the company's going, but forcing those decisions through. And the one I remember, I think we've talked about this in the book, is there's a time, someone in the 2000s, when IBM really started to focus on services. They, they obviously left that business today in 2022. But then services were a big deal. And what came down from the top is everybody's got to focus on services. God, but Gus had some mainframe deals. <laughs> Mainframe is not a service. Mainframe is a big product. And so he pushed back against uh, some of the thrust of services. Said, look, we've that's that's terrific. I'll do that. But I really, we've really got to try and sell this hardware. So that took a lot of managerial courage. So those are the six acumen dimensions. And I think we developed that during the course of writing this book. So at some level, clearly this book is a biography of Gus's 
time as account manager through his three major accounts, but it's also latest thinking on strategic account management and some things in there which have not appeared certainly in my previous books. You know, I'm going to zoom in, if I may, Gus, back to you. On the, there was one particular point, and I, it seemed to me that this was a real turning point in the relationship with City early on, where you discovered that kind of the root cause of one of the reasons why IBM wasn't more successful was City had to do with the way that City allocated costs internally. And my feeling is, is that it would take somebody who had been an executive at a large company like IBM and had held the positions that you had to even really kind of understand that nuance about with finance, there's this, <laughs> you've got to allocate your costs somewhere. And sometimes it's not clear where you put the costs. So you, you sort of put them, finance kind of makes that decision and they put the costs where they want to put them. And people sort of figure that out internally then, and then they know gee, if I do this, it will be better for my budget than if I do that. You figured that out. I, could you just kind of uh, maybe just tell the story a little bit and share that insight that you got? Because that was seemed like a critical turnaround. This is about the cost allocation and city system to do it. And I tripped over this in a way. We were looking at why their mainframe business was slowing down and they were moving to service. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that. Part of it is the educational system. It's the skills people have. There's a lot of issues. One of them was the cost allocation. And I knew that because one of the guys on my team were having a conversation about the data center. And I asked him how much they charge their users. And every company does this. You have a data center. You've got to charge it back to the users. There are a couple of ways to do it. You could charge by how many MIPS they use. MIPS is the measure of millions of instructions per second is what it stands for. It's the way you measure the power in a mainframe. You can charge by MIP, you can charge by transaction. There's a number of ways to do it, but the most common one is so much per MIP. So I got the number and I don't remember what the number was. Well, let's say it was 25,000 a MIP is what they charge their user. When I heard that, I said, there's gotta be something wrong with that. I worked at Merrill for all those years and I know Merrill was charging their users 18,000 a MIP. So why would City be charging 25,000 if and these numbers are made up, why is it that City would be charging so much more? And that started the work. I met with, with Mel Taub, one of those people who always wants to do the right thing. He called his, uh, his finance guy in, we had a conversation about it. Finance guy was already working on fixing it. I got him more information from the IBM outsource people, what we charge per MIP. I couldn't tell them what Merrill charged, but I told them they're charging a lot more. So then you gotta figure out the nuances in the system so the system is, is making people do the right thing and not the wrong thing. And their system was causing people to say mainframes are too expensive. I'm going to put this on a Unix server. But the reason the mainframe was not more expensive it had to do with the allocation method they were using. That's the example that we use in the book. I would argue that most people would miss that. No, all you were going to make a comment. Yeah, first of all, allocation has always worried me, given me trouble. I mean, I think that accountants have this sort of raw oath, like the doctors have the Hippocratic oath, but the oath for accountants is if you see a cost allocated, and you may be better off not allocating, treating it as, as a cost center. And the number of times that I've seen companies get in trouble because of the allocated uh, costs, they would be making a profit based on direct costing, but then you throw in the allocation, then they're losing money, and, and that's, that can be a real problem. 
But what I think you see here is an example of this organizational acumen. I mean, just think about that. Here you've got someone from the outside going into the customer and saying, the way you're doing it, this basic function of allocation is wrong. That's really amazing. The, the level of insight Gus was able to develop about this problem of helping cities solve a problem that they were just beginning to realize they had. That's tremendous organizational acumen. So to be a successful account manager, you have to know as much about what the customer is doing as the customer knows themselves, because that's the way you identify these opportunities. This this, this story, which we do talk about at some length in the book, is a great story and really shows account management at its best. And Gus, could you, in in your career development, I mean, you started at IBM, they had a sales training academy, as I understand it, and you were in that for a year. And where along your career did you learn this? Because I doubt that you learned it at home or in school. It was the school of hard knocks, perhaps, not academically. What can you do? You learn these things in the course of your experience. And I was very lucky that I started at IBM and my first customer was the National Bank of North America. They had about 3,500 employees. This is, you can kind of get your arms around that. So you see what they're trying to do is the 1970s. We wanted to automate their branches put teleterminals in, ATMs, which is a fairly new thing at the time. Want to get some ATMs there so the customers could service themselves. They wouldn't need a teller. There's a period of high inflation in the 70s. So the teller, cost of tellers kept going up and up. So you want to replace the expense with capital. You make a capital investment in an ATM and you can replace some tellers. It's a financial decision. So you start there, but as I said, that you can get your arms around that. I had some other jobs in IBM, some things we don't talk about very much in the book. I move on, I get Merrill Lynch. Now, this is a national company. They've got 500 and some branches around the US, and it's got 35 or 40,000 employees, more complex. But the things you learn at NBNA are applicable here as well. It's, you know, we did an automation, a branch project with them as well. That was a replacement of what they had, but it was a huge deal, that TGA deal. What I learned at NBNA on how you pose it, how you implement it on something that's smaller and simpler is now transferable to something that's larger and more national. Then you go global and you have all those other complexities added to it. Here you get into a global account. Now you've got pricing issues, contract issues, our capability to support something worldwide. It's not the same everywhere. I worked in Vietnam. They could have used IBM Global Service, the business consulting people that we had, but they don't exist in Vietnam. You have to bring them in from Australia or Singapore. And the cost of that, particularly in terms of things cost in Vietnam, was prohibitive. And there were these differences you have to deal with all over the world. If you drop somebody into that and say, here's your new job at IBM, you're going to manage Citigroup worldwide, it's impossible. But it's a gradual learning thing. The best way I can answer the question, Harvey, let me just can I just build on that and talk about one of the career directions that Gus did not pursue, which illustrates this notion of organizational acumen, really trying to understand what's going on a customer. And Gus talked a little bit about, about uh, tellers and uh, working with tellers at NBNA. What he didn't say was that as part of that job, he went to teller school to become a teller. So way, way back, Gus could have gone off and become a teller as a career. The point about that is that to really understand what the technical issues were for tellers and where IBM 
could be of value, he really needed to understand what a teller did and then put in the investment to actually go through teller school and become a certified teller. With organizational accuracy, yeah, that's what you've got to be prepared to do, to put in the investment to learn as much as you can about the customer so that you're then in a position to aid that customer and bring value to them. And that's something Gus did throughout his career. Yeah, the bank allowed me to attend their teller school. It was a two or three week training program. One of my systems engineers and the tellers. But as a result of studying the branches, the teller school, and then going to the branches and understanding it, I understood their systems at the end of this better than their executives did. I knew what a teller did and what happened when somebody made a deposit. We could track that all the way through the bank and understand the cost every step of the way. That's the way we convinced the bank to automate the branches. But the knowledge that you gain by doing that, the knowledge of the customer's business, you know, you become an expert in their business. And as I said earlier, they could hire a consultant to do that, cost them millions of dollars, but it's a byproduct of my job. In order to sell this, I've got to understand the system. And that uh, I learned that at NBNA, and it helped me throughout my, the rest of my career in sales. Understand the customer, understand their problems, understand how you can help them solve those problems. That's what we do. I would love to go on for hours, but that's not practical. Just incredible story. I'm sure you could, we could, like I, said, I know from our previous discussions, we could talk for hours about this, but it's really been insightful. I thank you so much for your time and have any last comments you'd like to make? Well, I just make a comment actually about overall the, the series that you're doing, Harvey. And I think this series of which now we're just, Gus and I are going to be one part. And we've given you a sense, this book that we put together is for the reader a learning about how to deal with regional, national, and multinational companies. And we really think by following Gus's career, along with IBM, and of course, one of the things we should say is that during the period of Gus's career, IBM had some very different series of results. They were doing great in the 70s, less good in the 80s and early 90s, a recover in the late 90s and 2000s. So that run through the book for anyone who's in the account management business as tremendous learning in this book from what, what Gus did. And also, as we've sort of, as I said earlier, it's, it's our, now my latest thinking on account management. But I think for, for hopefully from what we've, we're doing today and from all the other episodes you've run in this podcast series, Harvey, this is really giving SAMA members and others ideas of what, what the cutting edge material is in account management. And I think that SAMA is doing a tremendous job, for, both for the SAMA community and those peripheral to the community in pushing through the intellectual capital development of SAMS globally. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be for, to be here. For Gus and me to be part of that today. Well, it's gosh, it's such a pleasure and something that I've learned along the way is we always keep learning no matter how old we get. It's incredible sure. that adults learn best from stories and best practices. It's really true. And you've shared some great best practices. You've had amazing experiences, both of you. We're so grateful for your time. And I really do encourage you for those who want to learn and maybe. It's the equivalent of the teller school of Gus learning how to be a teller. If you want to learn about great strategic account management, go to wessexlearning.com or Amazon and look for customers win, suppliers win. You won't be sorry you did this. 
It'll be the best investment in yourself and your career that you can make. With that, gentlemen, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time. And we'll hopefully this won't be our last conversation. It's our first. Terrific. Thank you.